0: What's up, everyone? I am joined today with a familiar name. Many of you know Doug Krause, I'm sure. I'm excited to talk with Doug about some of this craziness that's going on with the mortgage industry and mortgage rates in particular in the past few months. If you hadn't been paying attention, rates have been like skyrocketing. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on there and what you might expect in the future. We're also going to get into primarily talking about like the pros and cons of a physician loan. So Doug, I'm sure some of you, Doug is the man with physician loans. He knows them backwards and forwards. He does physician loans in like pretty much, I guess he's 49 states now. So he does them all over the country and he, through his lender BMO Harris Bank, Uh, offers those, and and knows a lot of the stuff behind the scenes there. So we're going to be talking about the pros and the cons of the physician loan today and working through those. And so these are the things you need to know, ideally, before you're going about purchasing a home, especially if if you're purchasing it with a physician loan. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Doug, what's up, man? Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. How you been doing? Doing good. Doing good. You uh, surviving all this mortgage craziness? (laughs) It has been a little chaotic with the
1: Fed move. A little shocking when I talk to some people and they see rates are two points higher than they were three months ago. So that's sticker shock to some.
0: Yeah. What have some? I guess it's been two months, three months. Time has been up about two percent, right on average.
1: Yeah, I think probably end of January first of February, I had thirty-year fixed rates hovering around threes. Low threes even, and now we're upwards of five for a hundred percent no money. So yeah, we're a little different than most that our jumbo rates are quite a bit better than our conforming rates. So if it was a below six forty seven limit, mine's actually mid to high fives. Where if it's a jumbo with five percent down, then I might still be in the high fours. But okay,
0: it, yeah. big jump. That's a really unique setup. I want to get into that because that's. I think an important point we'll circle back to. But today I was thinking maybe we talk like pros and cons of physician loan. A lot of you guys listening or physicians, you're thinking about the physician loan probably naturally, but there are multiple options out there. In a lot of cases the physician loan is going to make the most sense, but there are plenty of cases where it doesn't make a lot of sense. Doug already started to sprinkle in one of those scenarios, which like I said, we'll circle back to, but maybe before we get into that, Let's start with the advantages of the physician loan just to get that out there.
1: Three main reasons why people take physician loans. One, low down payment. So normally you couldn't borrow a seven-figure loan without putting 20% down. So like in my case, every lender is going to be different rules for their program. But mine, we go to a million dollars with no money down, million five with 5% and 2 million with 10% down. That's going to be 20% down on a typical jumbo loan. So there's your first advantage. The second is lack of PMI. I mean, our default rate on doctor loans is zero. So we don't really need PMI to insure us against loss. So that's a big savings compared to a jumbo loan that was going to have PMI. And then the other almost main reason that people utilize a doctor loan is when they're moving across the country and taking a new job, this one actually lets you start with just an employment letter with a signed contract with a showing your salary. And this is something that varies. Everybody's got their own set of rules again, but mine's up to 90 days before your job starts. If you've got a signed offer letter, then that's what you qualify on is your future income. So that's really your three main benefits of a doctor loan.
0: So no money down or less money down than the typical loan. You get to avoid PMI, private mortgage insurance. That's the annoying cost you have to pay normally when you don't have what, 20% down or. Yeah.
1: And that's quite expensive. And that one's credit driven too. And it sucks because it's
0: just a pure expense. It's like just straight up. It's you paying insurance to protect the bank. You're getting nothing out
1: of it except a loan. The bank's the one that's getting the benefit out of it that somebody else is sharing in their risk that if you default, they're going to take on part of the loss. That's what it's for.
0: Yep, and then the simple underwriting or simple process, less rigorous requirements to qualify would be the third big one, right?
1: The other one would be the being able to close before the job starts. Yeah. So most a regular jumbo loan, you'd have to have job in hand and pay stubs. Where this one, you can close just on that future job.
0: Yeah, most banks, like the average bank that doesn't do a physician loan, is if you're like in training going into practice. Like, hey, I got this contract, they're gonna be like, you're crazy. Show me a pay stub, or maybe two, right?
1: And something else I see a lot is people like, well, I'm already in attending, I'm already making three, four hundred thousand a year. Doesn't matter if you're leaving Ohio, and moving to California, and buying a house in California, you can't use your Ohio income to buy a California house because huh. it's obvious if your primary residence is California, you're leaving that job at some point. So even with the income and you say, I've got a future job starting in California in two months, I'm going to stay at this job until then. So there's no gap of income. You can't get that with a regular jumbo loan because the other job hasn't started. And the one you're talking about saying, I'll make my payments with this income, it's going away.
0: Yeah. In some cases, I guess that third reason in itself could be like kind of a make it a good deal in itself. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And that's exactly and, right. And make it work. Moving across the country, you got it's there's a lot of moving parts of that as it is and I know those time crunches can get pretty pretty tight there and Doug's got a nice setup cuz he can work in what are you 49 states, right? Everywhere but New York. We're actually adding them here in another month or so. Yeah, so that's really nice cuz you can maintain a relationship and a lot of I know a lot of you guys are moving quite a bit especially if you're in training and even beyond that. There's typically Some moving going on, but that typical mortgage can cause some problems in that setup. Now, the no down scenario is, I think, an appealing one as well for earlier career or maybe have another house potentially. Somebody could have a house that they have their down payment on it that they need to move
1: get their kids settled or whatever, and then sell that one after the fact. So that where you're doing no money down, you don't have to have that equity. You do have to qualify with both payments, but you don't have to strip the equity out of that one by pulling out a HELOC or something to bring the money to the table on the new one. Or maybe once you sell it, your better use of your money is you wanted to spend it to pay off your student loans or something else anyway.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the most common reason we're seeing with our one-on-one planning with people, most common reason we're seeing people go for that zero percent down is they just need to kind of catch up on investing and like they want to make sure they're maxing out all these tax shelters and they got student loans they want to pay off potentially. There's a lot of things that they want or maybe should do from a financial standpoint to catch up on those things and being able to put zero down is appealing because they can put the money to work elsewhere. But I think that can also get into one of the downsides of it. You have to be careful with that, putting 0% down. Yeah. I mean, if the market pulled
1: back, you could be underwater and then you're stuck and you don't want to be in the same boat people from 2010, 12 were, where they owed 100% and then the houses went down 20, 30, 40%. And then you're Really underwater, and don't have the option of selling unless you're just sitting on cash on the sidelines that so you could write a check to get rid of it.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes us old guys, knowing that we both were around in the last real estate downturn. Maybe not that old, but yeah, I, I'm I am seasoned. We'll <laughs> say seasoned veterans. Yeah, I started yeah, in business in '99, so I've been around. So real estate can go down, by the way, and can go down a lot, but it's been a really good run, and not we're gonna. I'm going to try not to make predictions, Doug. You can make predictions if you want, but I have no idea what it's going to do in the future. Um, I don't think it's going to crash like like it did. In yeah, I think we're in a different environment
1: then. I mean, I think the last time, I'm going to blame Wall Street, not the mortgage guys. We were just the middleman, but there was just some garbage loans out there that were packaged. If anybody's ever watched the big short movie, yeah, yeah. it's a very telling, very accurate yeah. portrayal of what happened. That's a great movie. Wall Street was selling, take your, somebody that
0: worked at McDonald's making $10 an hour and say, Hey, you can go buy 10 investment properties. I bought my first house in 2006 or seven. And they're like, nah, we don't need anything. Just, I don't even remember if I showed, I might've just, it was very little financial requirements. I, in fact, I probably should not have bought the house. Now, fortunately, like my life improved financially and I was okay, but like the lender, and it was actually countrywide. (laughs) who loaned me the money, but it was a very easy process. I was surprised.
1: Yeah. Stated income, stated asset. It was like, hey, I make, it. Yeah, I make this much money. That's what they called it. Yep, I make this much money. and was like, okay. And then I don't have any down payment. Like, No problem. So we don't you. really need to see a pay stub and you don't have any down payment. You don't have any reserves. No problem. Here, how many houses do you want to buy? That was the <laughs> market then. Yeah. And it was a different... Different market. Things for QM now, qualified mortgages where banks are actually responsible to make loans that they can see that the borrower has the means to repay, which is a good thing. I hope we don't end up with short-term memory and bounce back to Wall Street getting greedy and saying, let's start selling this crap again. And you know, we'll make a bunch of money on it, and then the market implodes because that's exactly what happened. It was as soon as the first person couldn't pay. Then it just rolls up hills to the point of if they can't pay then there's nobody to sell their house to to buy the next more expensive one and then got to the point where there's people like yeah i can afford to pay my mortgage but heck if nobody else is going to pay theirs why would i want to pay off my million dollar house it's only worth seven hundred thousand now and then yep. they strategically walked away so i don't hey, see that math. happening again i mean yep. aside from the doctors and veterans most people if they're buying a million dollar house they're putting 200,000 down. The veteran and the doctor are really the only ones. And when I say doctor, I'm including dentists and a few other professions. They lump in that professionals that I joke, my wife's a doctor too, that if she lost her job, she's got five more offers at the end of the day. Only doctor unemployed is one that chooses not to work. So she's going to have the means to continue to pay her mortgage. If something happens, she's not going to be in the same boat of a recession and hey, we don't have a job for you. There's always going to be a job for doctors. And that's why banks are excited to get them as clients. And That's why we offer them no money down and no PMI. And hey, we'll even let you close three months before your job starts. So everybody's rules are different on that. These are portfolio loans where might be a little quirk here and there that one bank goes to 750. The next bank says we only do 60 days. Some other bank says, Hey, we include pharmacists in our program. But as a rule, the idea behind it is zero risk borrower because they have the ability to pay, they do pay. And I've been doing doctor loans for several years, and not one is defaulted. The banks love that kind of book of business did you were
0: you doing them in 2008 and they kind of no i didn't
1: start probably until i'd be curious i think
0: 2013 2014 i would think i worked with physicians then and um none of well we had a handful of people that were like stuck with two houses that were underwater on houses or they got kind of stuck in an area kind of unwillingly ish like a long story but like Those sorts of situations, but they definitely were not in danger of foreclosure. They could make, which is the nice thing about a physician. You have higher income and you're in demand and you typically can make the payments. It's just a matter of it might negatively affect your planning if the market were to turn.
1: Yeah, I mean, even physicians, though, I mean, part of my book is, you know, from my wife's perspective, and I'm sure you probably fully agree with this, is not to buy the McMansion and put yourself in a position where you have a great income, but then you're still married to your job because you took out a 45 debt ratio. I don't think that's a good idea for anybody, but I especially don't think so whenever you're making really good money to go to the same level of keeping up with the Joneses. And if you're making 300,000 a year, you should not be at a 45 debt ratio. That's just not something I like to see and hate for people to feel like they can't take a vacation or afford a new car if they need it or whatever
0: the case is. Yeah. So can you clarify just like, so 45 debt ratio, just specifically, what's that mean?
1: So if somebody had an income of, let's just say for argument's sake, $100,000, keep the math simple, 120, make the math really simple. Then they make 10,000 a month. Then you can spend $4,500 a month towards all of your credit reportable debts, which are going to be your house payment, your car payment, if you have child support, alimony, anything like that, but not your car insurance, your groceries, paying your taxes, all that's coming out of the 55%. So the bank's looking at what's going to show up on your credit report, subtract all of that and whatever's left can go to your mortgage. But what I'm saying is great. If you're making 600000 a year, then don't go buy a $2.5 million house just because one of my competitors says you can afford it. Yeah. You know? You make 600, you can pay off a house in 10 or 15 years. If you buy something for a million or a million and a half, where you go spend two and a half, three million, you're going to be just like everybody else, drug out 30 years and creeping by to make the minimum payments.
0: Yeah. 45% equals house poor. Yeah, exactly. Because that's partially how the lenders set the limit, right? Because like house poor means you're still in the house. (laughs) <laughs> you can afford the house but just barely right 45 is you, you can just barely pay your bills because
1: yeah. you have to remember if you're in a high income as you could be in a w2 situation paying out nearly 50% of your paycheck your probably take home is 50 to 55% if you're lucky yeah. so that doesn't leave much if you're taking 45 of it to pay everything that shows up in your credit card because you still got to eat pay car insurance and Take a vacation and whatever. So
0: what does that get you? Is that yes at a hundred thousand dollar income you could afford? Let's assume you have no other debt. And that's like a million dollar house, right?
1: Forty five hundred dollars would probably buy eight hundred thousand dollar. And that that's kind of a loaded question because in Colorado it'd probably buy nine hundred. In Texas, it'd probably buy six hundred or maybe even five hundred. And the reason being, Colorado, eight hundred thousand dollar house, the property taxes might yeah. be 2500 a year. So they're in looking Texas, at the total be, payment. Yeah, five times that. Because they have Texas crazy taxes are,
0: property tax.
1: You don't have to pay any state income tax. so right. You have to get it somewhere. So
0: Illinois is the uh, double They get you is. both places. Yeah, it's like high income tax and high property high tax. High property.
1: But Texas is right up there at the highest property taxes. A million-dollar house in Dallas is probably 25000 a year in property taxes. And a million-dollar house in Denver
0: is probably 5000 Yeah. 6,000 max. So you mentioned the book. Some of you listening might not be familiar with Doug's book. So Doug actually wrote the book on this stuff, which is even better. And so Hippocratic House, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. And my wife, again, she's a physician. We have a podcast on financial residency, but that's where this is branded through. HippocraticHouse.com or com. We just give it away. And it's definitely not a Grisham novel, but it's a couple hundred pages of, you know, especially a first-time buyer, position buyer, everything in it applies to you. There's a chapter in it about credit. There's a chapter about realtors, definitely something about the settlement, what to expect. It's again, not a riveting read, but it's a very good read for somebody that wants to learn and The problem is that you could call me and I could talk to you for hours on end, but if you don't know the questions to ask and or if I'm not available at two in the morning when you have time to read this book, then there's just things out of this that if you read it ahead of time before you call somebody like me or one of my competitors, gives you
0: the, hey, I should ask them this. Yeah. And Doug's unique in that, of course, you are in this business as well, so there you do have financial incentive to work with people. But like Doug is about as objective as you can get from the standpoint of someone that working in that industry, that's going to be a more objective assessment of that process. tell my
1: wife all the time, she refers business to me. That's always a good sign when your wife will refer your business. That's a good sign. But, But I always tell people like there's just niches that certain banks, like one bank might be, hey, our niche is we want loans under 500,000, and they're going to price aggressively. And other banks are going to be like, we don't really want that business. We want $2 million loans. So that's where they're aggressive. In my instance, I don't have probably as good a rates as you're going to find with somebody else if it's a $500,000 loan. But if you're over 650, where the jumbo limit is in most of the country, we're super aggressive. And I just tell people that. Call me and say, hey, here's my rate," but do your due diligence, make a few phone calls because you might do better. And I don't want to close a loan just for the sake of winning the business. If I'm, you have an opportunity to save
0: money, I'm actually going to tell you that. Yeah. So we covered some of the upsides of the physician loan. Let's talk about some of the downsides of the physician, mor- physician mortgage and relative to other alternatives.
1: Really based on some lenders... They're going to price their physician loans higher, meaning they're going to look at a Fannie Freddie type rate or their jumbo book of business and say, we're not making them put money down and there's no PMI. So they're going to build it into the rate and the rate's going to be more expensive. Not the case with my bank. And my bank looks at it and says, hey, these guys don't default. So we don't need the PMI. Yeah. And then they look at it and say, these are loans that we really want. They're borrowing the right amount of money. And it's a good diversified product for us. So we actually take our jumbo product and then cut the rate by an eighth of a point. Even if it's 100% financing, we're cheaper rate on the doctor loan. That's not true of all my competitors. So most of them are looking at the downside being the rates, or sometimes some of them are charging extensive fees, also not the case with mine. Mine's uh, our underwriting processing fees, $1,150. But if you're a million-dollar loan, we're giving you an $1,800 credit. So we're actually paying you to take a loan from us. So it just depends. You have to do your due diligence when you're asking. The three things that you're looking at when you're choosing a lender is service. Obviously, you got to find somebody you like, thinks it's going to get the job done, rate, and then the closing costs. So the closing costs and or rate with some of my competitors are higher.
0: And that's yeah, the big relative. downside. So it like really, if you're comparing a conventional on a V uh, with 20% down versus a physician loan, it's on average, what would you say higher percentage wise? Do you have a rough idea of like on average, like conventional 20% down versus typical physician loan with zero down? Normally I would say the
1: physician loan is going to be an eight to quarter higher, but like I said, in my quarter case, percent
0: to eight, eight to percent to quarter
1: percent for the average. physician loan. But in my yeah. case, we're looking at whatever, Hey, if you're a 20% down and here's the rate doctor loans at rate minus an eighth. That's just the way we price our doctor You
0: take an eighth off the jumbo or both conventionally and jumbo? We take an eighth off of whatever you price out as a non-doctor loan. It's an eighth lower if you take a doctor (laughs) loan.
1: So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want a $2 million house with 20% down, you think you want a jumbo loan. But really I'm like, no, you're a doctor. I'm going to give you that jumbo loan, but I'm going to call it a doctor loan because you're getting an eighth off the rate. So it's just a cheaper product. But the, I think the only thing that probably is going to compete with a doctor loan would be a veteran that's disabled. If you have that 10% disability and you have yeah. the funding fee, then VA rates, oh my God, in March of 2020, my 30-year VA rates at the time got down to 2.1% per 30 fixed. This bank I'm at doesn't even do VA loans. It takes special training for the underwriters and they don't have it yet. But that's really the only one I find really competitive with the doctor loan, unless you're at a bank that is upcharging their fees and or rate because it's a doctor loan. And that's going to almost always be the case if it's a broker. Brokers are a fantastic outlet for 80% of the population for a loan. But for a doctor loan, they just don't have the access to banks don't really offer this through the broker channel. And if they yeah. do, I don't know if any of your listeners ran into this back around Mother's Day, North Point was doing them and they pulled the plug and said, we don't care if you're closing tomorrow, we stopped doing doctor loans. And then Huntington Bank is another bank that offers their product through the broker channel, but go directly to Huntington and you're going to get half a point to a point better rate than you would through a broker. So brokers are fantastic for 90% of the people that not in this space just because they just can't compete because this is a like banks are like this is our bread and butter. Why would we give
0: this to a broker? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, it, downside in general, sometimes interest rates can be higher overall in the market, but it, with your products, it sounds like they're a touch lower. It's worthwhile to compare, especially if you're not working with Doug, you want to compare alternatives. If you, especially if you can put 20% down, you can ask, what's how's this compared to a conventional? We have had clients that the lender kind of pushes them to a physician loan and they had 20% down and we're like, no, you need to ask about the conventional loan. Because in that instance, it was quite a bit lower cost wise. It's good to look at your options. I think one of the other downsides, this is not like a product downside. It's more of like a psychological, I guess there's a temptation with going 0% down to maybe get a little overextended and have 0% equity there and may. it, if you have zero dollars elsewhere, that can be a problem. If you're really pushing the envelope of this, it's, you can get into more trouble the further you go with all this stuff. So it's, so if what I'm trying to say is if you're going to get into trouble, I'd rather you have 20% equity than zero because that's... And people
1: are human nature. People have a tendency to not necessarily tie it up, but just spend the money. So if you're not going to be somebody diligent and invest it and save it and have access to it if you need it, then a 100% finance loan, as you're saying, and then you don't have an emergency fund and or if it push came to shove and say, I need to move across the country and I owe 100% here by the time I pay a realtor, you need to write a check to get rid of your house. If you're in that boat, then probably shouldn't have took the 100% loan. There's, I joke, the acronym we call them is Henry's, which is high earners, not rich yet. And some new attendings, of course, they fall into that, and that's partly what doctor loans exist for too is yes, you can make the payment, but no, I don't really have any money just yet. You're gonna get there, but i I am definitely in the camp that if you're taking hundred percent financing and you don't have a lot of money, then start gaining some money quickly if you're buy so don't buy a house to where you can't then start setting aside a decent chunk of money to build up your your Emergency fund. So if you're going to close on a house and you're a 45 debt ratio, you're not really able to then say, now I'm going to save another two, three, four, or 5,000 a month yep. for that instance where I do want to move across country and I have to write a check to get rid of my house. So We're it's always... got its
0: pros, but it's also dangerous if you don't use it. Yep. It's like anything. We're always trying to talk people into tracking their net worth just as a kind of a uh good financial discipline maybe not the coolest thing in the world to track your net worth. I don't know. I'm a financial planner geek. But anyway, the nice thing about it is when you start tracking it, you can, I would always suggest quarterly or even monthly, but when you start tracking it, you can really see your progression and how you're doing and how things are growing. And so going back to what we we're just saying, if you're, a lot of people get overextended on the house which limits their ability to grow their net worth, or maybe just their home is the only asset that's growing, uh, and that's a problem sign. Like if you- yeah, and hopefully the
1: home does keep growing because, like you said, last twenty years, yes, but not uh, last twenty, but since the implosion corrected and since twenty twelve, the last decade we've seen nothing but appreciation. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case for right. the next twenty.
0: Yep. So-, so if your net worth is not growing. Aside from the house. So a lot of people have nice houses and medicine and real expensive houses, and they've been growing a lot. So you got a million and a half dollar house all of a sudden. But what I'm trying to say is if everything else has not been growing because you got a little overextended with the house, I think it would be helpful to be aware of that. And that's why it's good to track your net worth. Because what happens in that scenario is when the, if things go south, you have a lot less wiggle room. In that scenario, you can't really take much as much of a a downturn, whereas if you've been and you're not even able to save for things like retirement and education and traveling and those other things in life. There are other things in life, and I'm sure many of you have other areas you want to focus on, but it is a personal decision. Different people have a much put a higher value on having a nicer house. And There, I'm not going to say I'm not the guy that says like move to the lowest cost living area. Just so that you can save money and try to save as much as possible. I think there's reasons to move to high cost of living areas. Oh, like absolutely. I mean, family and that makes sense. I think that's what really matters in people's lives. So that's what it's really about is being able to match this sort of thing with what you consider most important.
1: I just talked to a doctor the other day that he was saying several of his friends in Salt Lake bought houses for $350 5 years ago and they're selling them for 900 right no, now. That's-
0: and that's... Where are you going to invest in the market with that kind of return? Sure <laughs> not this year. No, that's crazy. And that's abnormal. That It that, is abnormal. That, that's, don't expect to you do not replicate expect. that. Now, those kinds of numbers make me think that there's some bubble going on there. Yeah. But most areas are not quite. Salt Lake City has exploded growth-wise. Crazy. It's been a high, hot market. But anyway, do you see any short-term? I'm going to try to make you do a prediction here. <laughs> I just said we're not going to make predictions but I'm going to make Doug make a prediction. Maybe, maybe not a prediction, but what are your general thoughts on like where things are going from here? Like with the lending world, do you see any like trends? These, I'm curious of your observation.
1: Before we started, we were just joking about it. I think expert weatherman is going to be right 60% of
0: the time. So I'm going to preface my guess here. That's why I want to know. I Most people are 40%. Doug's going to be 60%. This is great. Flip of the coin, 50, 50. You're going to be right half
1: the time. I might be right 60% of the time, but I think rates are going to probably continue to climb the rest of this year, but not at a pace that, you know, we've seen year to date because I think we've seen a huge move. So if you see rates go up another three quarters of a point between now and the end of the year, I'm in the camp it, it's just as likely that next summer rates will be lower than they are at the end of the year than they are higher. And the reason I think that'll happen is they've got to do something because as we were talking, Salt Lake or Austin, some of the prices there went up 35, even 40% in a year's time. Something's got to give. They got to put the brakes on that. And that's going to happen with the Fed stepping in. And when they do it, I think they're going to do things to a point where, It's not an exact science, so they're probably going to overshoot, and that's where I think there's just as good a chance that as rates are potentially higher at the end of this year, I could see it being 50-50 that next summer, they actually might have to come back and say, oh, we overdid it, and we just – don't want to crash the market. So here we're going to lower rates back down. So time will tell that's my 60% guess, but housing prices, there's too many factors that rates, not the only that's driving them that nobody can sustain. I don't care if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon making a million dollars a year, if rates or prices keep going up 20% a year, the surgeons coming out five years from now, aren't even going to be able to afford a house. So that's got to stop, but I don't personally think that we're gonna see anything close to what we did in twenty twelve or thirteen. I think if you see a correction, it's gonna be stop seeing twenty percent appreciation and hey, if it's flat, then that's a win in my opinion. That's what
0: it is very location dependent too. Historically these downturns have been big time location. Like I live in Lexington, Kentucky and historically Lexington, Kentucky at least, has had much less volatility than the average market. But that's not to say it's going to change, but like Las Vegas, for instance, has had super volatile. Uh, right.
1: Florida, Texas, California, for sure. Those markets that you see the big swings when they things go up, they do come down. So the ones that go up the most are the City. ones... <laughs> and, and in fact, speaking of that, we do uh, finance in 49 states, but there's seven states that we limit to 95%. And that's the states that they're looking at and saying, hey, if something's going to happen, it's going to be one of these Uh seven states. Can you
0: tell us the seven states?
1: Yeah. So it's Florida, California, Maryland, Idaho of all states. I'm not sure. Idaho is hot. Is it? That that one surprised me. It's super hot. And then Nevada and D.C. So those states are, are states that my bank's saying. And we're just going to limit these to 95 so we don't think the market's going to come crashing down either or we wouldn't still be doing 100 percent loans mm-hmm. but we're looking at and say if something's going to happen it's probably going to be these states i don't, don't even see that happening there i think you're going to see stop seeing 20 percent and maybe see flat or five percent yeah as you said lexington i'm in kansas city my it's a steady eddy market It was zero to three four percent was the norm And Kansas City saw 20% last year, and it saw 18% the year before that. That's just so unheard of for a back-to-back years like that.
0: Yeah, historically, houses kind of gravitate to inflationary rates. I guess inflation's high lately, but... Yeah, for sure. Real rates, that's still too high, 20%. But one other question I just thought of before we part ways, I've been hearing people mention the arm more lately, and it's a unique... I guess the reasoning behind it is that they're thinking or the lender's thinking that rates are going to go back down. And so they're telling them, hey, let's do this ARM product and get that for five, seven years, whatever, 10 year ARM. And then when it, that way you have that period of time locked in. But then sometime from then now until then, rates are bound to go down back to where they were or below. And then we'll just refinance then. I'm curious if you've been seeing that or what your thoughts are on that.
1: I say a lot and from a bank's standpoint, obviously it mitigates their risk if you're giving somebody a 30 year note you're like locked in they actually stay thirty years which nobody does but if they did the bank's on the hook and then they have to answer to regulators that they keep enough on their balance sheet to account for that if they do an arm then hey after seven or ten years or five whatever the length of arm you take, then we can just adjust our rate to the market so we're not on the hook so we don't have to keep as much so of course, an armory, there's no reason to take it if you're not saving enough to mitigate the risk you're taking. But I will say 23 years doing this, that 90% of people do not keep a mortgage longer than 10 years. So that that may change as we move forward, because in the past 20 years, rates were falling. Consistently uh, too. Part of what drove that fact that mortgages didn't stay on the books 10 years was Take whatever today, because next year you're going to be refinancing to a lower rate anyway. Everybody's refinancing
0: over and over and over.
1: Those days I think are gone. And I don't think we're going to see, I think we're going to see an ascending rate pattern for a decade. You're always going to have a pullback. So if you close today at five, then there might be an opportunity to refinance at four and a half. Or if rates go to six, they might pull back to five and a half for a while, but maybe, but really I like an arm for two reasons. One, either you know that you're not going to stay in the house. So who cares what happens to the rate if you lock in for 10 years? And this is a, especially a resident, four years from now, I'm moving across the country. I'm yeah, seeing wherever I'm doing residency, this is not where I want to live. Or two, you make enough money and you were conservative enough that, hey, if my rate does jump to four or 5% on me, I can just write a check and get rid of my mortgage. Yep. Those two reasons is why I think an arm makes sense. But otherwise, if you're saying, Hey, I'm going to save 200 bucks a month times the next 10 years. That's $24,000. And you'll actually save another, in that scenario, say another seven or 8,000 that the cheaper rate will pay down equity faster. Yep. That's all going to disappear on you in two years. If year 11, your rate jumps three, 4%, and year 12, it jumps another 1%, then that's great. You save 30 it grand. Up. Yeah. And then starting year 13, you're way in the hole. Yeah. So, The only other reason would be is somebody that hey, this is the only way I can afford the house right now. I'm on a resident salary. In two years, I'm going to be on a tending salary. My income's five times as much. So, two hundred a month savings today means a lot more to me than a four hundred dollar increase might hurt me later. But as a rule, I only like arms if you fit into the category of either you're conservative and I can write a check, or I'm not going to be here, so it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, I think the problem I have with the whole approach. Is it's built on this like assumption for it to work, rates have to go back down. And that's unknown. That's not (laughs) a given, like it used to be. (laughs) Like, let's look. And I always send, as it's been coming up, I send them, I send clients, I don't just send them this, I have some breakdown of it, but I send them, I like to send them the uh, historical 30 year fixed mortgage rates, like a chart of it. And if you look at it, it's back in the 70s and it's like way high. And then it's been a pretty consistently reducing percentage rate from the 80s until just not long ago going downward so rates of like doug was saying been for a long period of time been consistently going down and there wasn't huge there was a little bit of up and down but there wasn't huge massive changes so my point is the reverse can happen we could have the same exact thing happen in the reverse where it's slowly going up for 10 20 years and in that situation that's a train wreck if you get the five-year seven-year arm and you end up with the house for a really long period of time. So it's not worth taking the risk in most cases. Now, I agree with your exceptions there.
1: It's something that comes up
0: a lot is my book
1: definitely points this out as you should be asking if there's a prepayment penalty, which they almost don't exist anymore. Those yeah. type of loans was what we were talking about in 12 and 13, the Wall Street loans that had those type of penalties. But even without a prepayment penalty, the first thing I hear is, why wouldn't I just take this arm, save the money, and if rates go up, I'll refinance. I'm like, well, stop and think about that. If your arm started at four and a half, and that's say that's a half point cheaper than thirty fixed, and then you want to refinance because your arm went to six and a half, I say, what do you think thirty fixed is? Thirty <laughs> fixed. If your arm went to six and a half, the thirty fixed yeah. is probably seven and a half now.
0: Yeah.
1: Or your arm. Up. Yeah. So yes, you can refinance. No, there's not a prepayment penalty, but your flawed logic of you could just refinance is true, but all you can do out of a refinance is start the clock over and stretch it out to 30 years again. Yeah. But you're not going to go from, hey, my rate went six and a half, I'll just refinance to a new four. Yeah. Once you get to six and a half, four is way in the
0: rear view mirror. Awesome. Doug, it's always fun talking mortgages with you. I've enjoyed it and appreciate you coming on the chat. Yeah.
1: Thanks for having me.